the 110th Psalm, a Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, You keep on sitting at my right hand until I have made your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength forth from Zion. You must keep on ruling in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning. You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at your right hand shall strike through the kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink from the brook in the way. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Now, last night, where we introduced the subject of Melchizedek, the great prophet, priest, and king of uh, Jerusalem, or Salem, the place of peace, the forerunner of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, toward whom he kept on pointing, we noticed a very remarkable thing. And that was, in the midst of international wars between various groups of nations, when Abraham, a man of God, acknowledged his covenantal responsibilities and correctly went to the aid of his nephew Lot, who was carried away with his goods by the more powerful uh, group of armies, after the fighting had all but ceased, with Abraham and his confederates gaining the victory, suddenly Melchizedek arrived on the scene and we are told that he was a prince of peace. With all of that warfare going on, it's very significant that Melchizedek is not mentioned as himself having actively participated in the warfare as one of the belligerents. And yet it is clear, even from Genesis chapter 14, that Melchizedek uh, performs a central role in the story, in that after Abraham, the real victor of those wars, has gained the victory, Abraham gives a tithe of all that he had precisely to Melchizedek, the Prince of Peace, who blesses him 
in the name of the Lord God of heaven and of earth, and gave him wine and bread. It is significant then that Melchizedek does not himself uh, in Genesis 14 um, participate in warfare, yet it is clear that the warfare uh, successfully completed leads Abraham to acknowledge the central role, as it were, of Melchizedek as being the one who successfully brought about the peace at the end of the hostilities. Now I want to suggest in tonight's passage that the Lord Jesus Christ, the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, did, unlike the Melchizedek we've been reading about last night, wage war during his life and at his death against Satan and those that follow him. But I want to go further. I want to say that after the Lord Jesus won victory in that war, he expects his followers uh, to continue to conduct warfare in his name, under his leadership and his command, until they have succeeded in his name in reducing all of God's enemies as a footstool under his feet. We are told in Psalm 110 that this is a psalm of David, a psalm composed by David. In the further discussion of material from this psalm by our infallible Lord himself, it is quite clear that Jesus understood David to be uttering these words. And indeed, in verse 1 of Psalm 110, um, David says, The Lord has said to my Lord, Now you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The one speaking is called the Lord. The Lord. Actually, uh, the high God. Uh, the God of heaven and earth. And that God, says David, said to my Lord, uh, to my Lord Jesus is the meaning, sit down at my right hand. The Hebrew words here are not the same. In English, uh, they are both translated Lord, but you will notice that in the first occurrence of the word Lord, in verse 1, it is spelt in block capitals. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whereas in the next line, it is spelt capital L, small O, small R, and small D. That is to bring out the difference between the two words. So the meaning really is the Lord God of heaven and earth, says David, said to my Lord, to my Savior, sit down at my right hand. Now notice that David here calls his Savior my Lord. The Lord Jesus, when the Pharisees 
tried to quote portions of this psalm as a trick question with which to trip him up, uh, pointed out that David had called the Messiah, quote, my Lord. Uh, how then could David call the Messiah, the son of David, my Lord, unless that son of David, whom David calls my Lord, were also the one who had preceded David. So Jesus' argument and exposition of that portion of this psalm is that the Messiah, when he came, would be both the son of David, but also David's Lord. In the Messiah's humanity, he would indeed be the son of David. In the Messiah's divinity, he would, of course, be David's Lord. However, there's more than just that in this verse. David tells us here that the Lord, the triune God, said to my Lord, said to the central person of the Trinity, who would later become the God-man Jesus Christ, the son of David, now you sit down at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The question needs to be asked, at what point in time did the triune God say to the Lord Jesus, sit down at my right hand? You may say, well, before the foundation of the earth, because the triune God planned even before creation uh, that the central person of the Trinity would become man, would live the perfect life, would die a substitutionary death, and thereafter would rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and sit down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Very true. But at what point in history uh, do we find the fulfillment of that command of the triune God to the central person of the Trinity once he becomes flesh, sit down at my right hand? And the answer is very obviously after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. For he ascended from the earth into heaven with the intention of then sitting down at God's right hand. This psalm then is referring to something that Jesus, uh, who in the next couple of verses is going to be identified as the king forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, it is referring to an event in the human life of the Lord Jesus when he would sit down at the right hand of God, namely after his ascension. For that reason, we see that Christ's exaltation uh, after his suffering uh, reaches a zenith, though not yet an end point, at the conclusion of his ascension when he arrives in heaven for the first time ever as the Son of Man. And of course, even as the Son of God, though he had been in heaven since heaven's creation, he had always existed as the Son of God alongside of the Father and alongside of the Holy Spirit before 
they had created a heaven at all. The Lord, says David, said to my Lord, you sit at my right hand. Now notice in the first place what David here calls the one who would sit down at the right hand of the triune God. David calls him my Lord. Two words. My Lord, my owner, and actually Jehovah. Uh, actually Adonai. Actually the one that David would respect and look up to as his leader. But not only the one who would have the power to command David, but his Lord, but also the one whom David calls my Lord. To be sure, this Lord Jesus Christ would not be the Lord only of David. He is the Lord of all those who call upon him and who recognize him. You too and I should be able to call Jesus my Lord. Not the Lord of the world in general, but my Lord. As Thomas said to Jesus after his ascension, my Lord and my God. There is a personal element here. We need to see that David, though himself a king, not only called Jesus David's Lord, but my Lord. And in that sense, everyone that would offer himself or herself to be a Christian at all needs to recognize not only the lordship of Jesus, but also that he is Lord of my life and of your life as your Lord and my Lord and personal Savior. Now the verse has David saying, quote, the triune God said to my master, you sit down at my right hand. It is the present continuous tense. The best way to translate it is, sit down and then keep on sitting down at my right hand until something has been accomplished. It is not that David says that the triune God would say to David's Lord, uh, sit down once at my right hand and then you can jump up again and um, you've done all that needs to be done. Such a thought would be quite facetious. The meaning is far rather that God, the triune God, would say at a certain point in time to David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, Sit down now and keep on sitting, sitting down at my right hand. The last words there, at my right hand, brings out the meaning better. Whenever in the Bible you hear of A sitting at the right hand of B, the meaning is that B delegates a considerable amount of uh, A's or th uh, th 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 sorry, let me start that again. Whenever in the Bible you read uh, that A says to B, you sit down at my right hand, uh, the meaning is that A thereby delegates a considerable amount of A's authority to B. 
appoints him, as it were, the vice-president or the vice-regent or the vice-gerent over the entire world. So that when uh, the triune God here says to David's Lord, now you sit down and then keep on sitting down at my right hand, the meaning is that the triune God delegates a great deal of authority uh, to David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, to sit down in the, in the position of power. In other words, to sit down on the throne of the universe and thenceforth to mete out justice and law on behalf of uh, and as the vice president of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit himself. Sit down at my right hand means now that you have ascended into heaven, now that as man you have kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, now that as man you have been punished by me on the cross for the transgression of all of the sins of my people, of your people, whom you were prepared to go and die for, now that as perfect man you have ascended into heaven after the resurrection from the dead, as perfect man, the triune God says to the man Jesus, sit down at my right hand, rule over the universe in heaven and from heaven, begin to exercise cosmic rule over all creatures and all of their actions in the name of the triune God. Now you will recollect that the Bible starts off um, stating that the triune God made man, Adam and his descendants, in the image of God and gave them as their task, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over the earth and the sea and the sky and all things that are in them. In Psalm 8, the holy writer says, When I survey the sun, the moon, the stars which you have created, what is man that uh, you should remember him? But yet... You have created man just a little lower than God himself, mere Elohim, not a little lower than the angels. I know that's what the Greek Septuagint says, and I know that the New Testament in the book of Hebrews quotes the Greek uh, Septuagint, uh, that, that, that the man has been made a little lower than the angels, but the original Hebrew doesn't say that. The original Hebrew says... You have created man, me Elohim, just a little less than God himself. Indeed, as the very image of God. And then goes on to say, you have put all things under his feet. Sheep and oxen and the fish that go through the paths of the sea. But the all things means more than just the earthly creatures. The all things includes the sun and the moon and the stars. For the psalm starts off, when I survey the sun, the moon, and the stars which you have made, what is man 
And the answer, you have put all things, therefore even the sun and the moon and the stars, under the feet of man. So that when Jesus, as the great second Adam, as the great second Noah, as the great second Melchizedek, ascends into heaven as man and on behalf of those men for whom he died and for whom he rose from the dead, he sits down as man on the throne of the universe at the right hand of the triune God himself to exercise cosmic power over the sun, over the moon, over the stars, over the oxen on earth, over the sheep, over all people, and over the fish that find their paths through the deep oceans. His power is over everything. And I don't mean simply the power of Jesus as God. I mean the power of Jesus as man is now over everything in the created universe. As man, Jesus does not have power over God, for as man, Jesus is still a creature. But as the highest of all creatures, according to his human nature, he has power over the entire universe. And in addition to that, as God, our Savior also wields divine power over the entire universe. But we're talking at this point of Christ's human power uh, in our place and as our representative. Well now, says David, the triune God said to my Lord, my Lord Jesus, sit down on the throne. Sit down at my right hand. Sit down in heaven as my vice president. Ah, oh, but uh, this vice presidency of our Lord Jesus in heaven after his ascension would not last for a mere term of four years as does the U.S. vice president. Uh, David says, the triune God said to my Lord Jesus, you keep on sitting down in the position of power at my right hand until I have finished making your enemies your footstool. Rather difficult to translate the second part of verse 1. It's not until I start making your enemies your footstool, as if as soon as God has started uh, making uh, Christ's enemies uh, his footstool, God will then stop and Christ will then get up uh, from the throne of the universe and no longer sit down, but it's present continuous. So the best way to translate it is um, sit down once and for all and keep on sitting down at my right hand until I have started to make and until I have finished making your enemies your footstool. Notice who it is that promises that he will make all of Christ's enemies into Christ's footstool. It is the triune God himself who makes this promise. Notice who it is that is going to be reduced uh, at Christ's feet. Christ's enemies, those who resist Jesus Christ, 
those who do not succumb to his royal will. And notice whose footstool it is uh, where Christ's enemies are going to be reduced. David says, the triune God says to Christ, the enemies will be reduced at your footstool. Now the throne of the universe was not only, as it were, a chair, but a chair with a footstool. And the king sitting on the chair or the throne would place his feet uh, on the footstool. And the thought here is that all of Christ's enemies would begin to be brought and would keep on being brought under his feet, under his footstool, uh, in subjection to him, so that they would recognize and pay homage to him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. It's the same sort that you have with Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and have dominion over it. That word have dominion over it in the Hebrew literally means to put your foot on these things and exert your lordship over them. Almost like a boxer in a boxing match uh, that has knocked out his opponent and then proceeds to put his foot on the neck of the vanquished opponent, the winner and still champion, uh, that sort of, uh, of image. And so what David is saying here under inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this psalm is that the triune God has said to David's Lord Jesus Christ, now you sit down once and for all and keep on sitting down on the throne of the universe at my right hand as my vice president until I have finished making your enemies into your footstool. This shows against all brands of premillennialism and especially dispensationalism that the rule of King Jesus is not something that will start at the time of the future rapture, nor is the rule of King Jesus something that will start only after the final judgment. No, no! The rule of King Jesus has started uh, in his capacity as man after his, after his resurrection from the dead, at the completion of his ascension into heaven, when he then, in heaven, sat down on the throne of the universe to rule over the whole of the heaven, over the whole of the astronomical heavens, the sun and the moon and the stars, and to rule as man from heaven over the earth and over all creatures that on earth do dwell and all people that on earth do dwell, and that he will from heaven expand the earthly recognition of that rule by men on earth until all of Christ's enemies have been reduced at the end of world history or before the end of the world history to a condition of subjection to his rule, uh, to be made a footstool under his feet. Oh, see the kind of Jesus that David portrays for us here in this psalm under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It is no namby-pamby, Arminian type of Jesus banging on the door of, of your heart and say, Buddy, can you please spare a dime? Open the door of your heart and invite me in because it's mighty cold out here. That is not 
the image. It is rather one of Christ in his human nature who rules over heaven and over the earth and over everything and everyone in them and who will bring about in the course of the future centuries the reduction of all of his enemies until they submit under his footstool. And such a Christ is not to be trifled with, as he himself says, immediately after his resurrection and just prior to his ascension, and now to me, the Son of Man, all power in heaven and earth has been given. Therefore, you must get going and keep on going and proclaim the gospel to every creature and turn all nations into my disciples and baptize all the nations into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and then teach all of the baptized nations to keep absolutely everything I have ever commanded from Genesis 1 verse 26 when God first spoke to man right down to the last word in the book of Revelation. Amen. Even so, yea, come Lord Jesus. The whole counsel of God, by implication, is to be proclaimed by the churches, ministers of the word and sacraments, and to be supported by God's people through their tithes to every person on this planet and to throw down the uh, ultimatum of unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing less than that is supposed to be preached from the pulpits. The triune God said to my Lord Jesus, you sit down and keep on sitting down on my throne at my right hand until I have finished making your enemies the anti-Christian powers into your footstool. And I'm going to be arguing that the way in which Christ brings about the reduction of his enemies under his footstool, century after century, subsequent to his ascension, is by stirring up his earthly church to go forth as his mighty army proclaiming the gospel and living the Christian life so that by their testimony, Jesus Christ in heaven, working through his Spirit in the hearts of his earthly people, moves them forward like a mighty army moves the church of God. This is what I'm going to be arguing, just as Melchizedek, the great prophet, priest, and king, and the man of peace, moved Abraham and those confederate with him like a mighty army through the world at that time until Abraham had gained the victory. So too, this process is to continue as a fruit of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ and as an outworking of the unfinished work of the Lord Jesus Christ which he is going to finish from heaven through the outreach of his Christian church, of his people here on earth who follow him. Now look at verse 2. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. 
You must rule in the middle of your enemies. David apparently is the one who utters these words and David seems to be talking to the one whom he calls my Lord, my Lord Jesus, so that the meaning of verse 2 would be the triune Lord, he will send the rod of your strength, O Christ. He will send it forth and he'll send it forth out of Zion. Therefore, you, O Son, you, O Christ, are to keep on ruling in the middle of your enemies. It is the triune God himself that verse 2 says, shall send and shall keep on sending forth the rod of Christ's strength, his scepter, uh, with which he wields kingship over everything in the universe. But notice where this scepter, this rod of Christ, goes forth from. David says, from out of Zion. That doesn't mean from out of Zionism, nor does it mean from out of that small mountain known as Mount Zion in Jerusalem today. It means Zion as the Christian church. We are Zion. We are the mountain of the Lord. Behold, in the latter days, the Lord shall lift up his mountain, Mount Zion, and the law of God goes forth from Zion, goes forth from the Christian church in power and converts or demolishes all people that dwell on earth. Now let's face it. You and I do not have the strength with which to convert the world. And yet this is the job that God and Christ have given the church of Christ to go forth out of Zion, out of the Christian church, and to wield the rod, the scepter, the symbol of Christ's rule over the world here and now. But if we lack the strength, where shall we get the strength? I shall lift up my eyes to the hills. Where will my help come from? Our help is in Jehovah who made the heavens and the earth. Or as David says in this psalm, the Lord, the triune God, He shall send forth the rod of Christ's strength, His royal scepter, and send it forth from Zion. Not to Zion, that's premillennialism. But from Zion. We don't have an absentee Jesus in heaven. He Himself tells us, Look, I shall continue to be with you all the days, even unto the ends of the world. We need to see that Jesus Christ is alive and well on planet earth, to be sure. According to his human nature, he is now seated in heaven on high, but according to his Holy Spirit that was poured forth by him as his reward, which he earned for his human work, which he did on our behalf to the satisfaction of the triune God, that Holy Spirit, I say, donated by the Trinity to the earner, Jesus Christ, has been poured forth from heaven into the church and that Holy Spirit stirs up weaklings like Peter and you and I and makes us strong in the Lord so that in the power of His Spirit we go forth from Zion, the Christian church. The Spirit of Christ in heaven stirs us up as His earthly army to go forward and to finish 
the battle and to proclaim the victory which in principle he, our great leader, has already achieved for us and which he continues to achieve through us as his earthly body, his arms, his eyes, his ears, his hands, his feet, his instruments of righteousness, Paul says in Romans chapter 6, on this earth, the Lord shall send the rod of Christ's strength forth from Zion from the Christian church. And therefore, and therefore, both the triune God and David can say to the Lord Jesus Christ, keep on ruling in the middle of your enemies. He's ruling in heaven, but he's ruling also on earth. He says to me, all power has been given in heaven and on earth, but the kings of the earth resist his rule. Psalm 2. What then does Jesus do? Say, oh, well, this is very sad. I'd better be quiet and cease uh, exerting my rule over the earth because the, the kings of the earth don't want to acknowledge my rule. No. He flexes his muscles in heaven. He stirs up his earthly body on earth and he says, Onward, Christian soldiers, march forth from Zion in the power of my outpoured spirit. And he rules from heaven, also here on earth, in the middle of his enemies, pushing back his enemies, using his church to do it, from one trench to the next, until finally the job is done at the end of world history. That's what this is all about. And that's why Jesus tells his followers that they are to pray each day, May your kingdom keep on coming right here on earth as it is in heaven, day by day, giving us each day our daily bread. And now look at verse 3. It says, Your people shall become willing in the day of your power. Now, let's face it, a lot of Christians are unwilling uh, to go forward in the name of the Lord today. And part of the reason why they're unwilling, they think that God expects them to go forth in their own power, which, of course, would be altogether useless. But, you know, God has a wonderful capacity of taking weaklings like us and giving us the strength and the power of Almighty God Himself in the power of His Spirit and in making us bold for the, for the Lord. And that's why it says in verse 3, Your people shall become willing in the day of your power. What is the day of Christ's power? Surely it is at the end of his earthly life uh, when he himself declares on Easter Sunday, To me all power in heaven and earth has been given. We are now in the day of Christ's power. To be sure, the way in which Christ's power ever since then is being exercised is uh, certainly uh, funneled through the church and through what he expects the church to do. It's as if he restrains the full exercise of all the power over the earth which he already has, which he tells us he has, contingent upon the willingness of his church to flex the church's muscles with the power that God goes and keeps on giving them. And the church is often unwilling to be used and to be stirred up by the power of the Holy Spirit. But verse 3 says, Your people shall become willing. 
in the day of your power. It is now the day of Christ's power. But are we willing to be used by him to go forth unto war and to win the war and to clean up the world on the basis of what Christ has already done? Are we willing? Are you willing? Well, that's the bad news. Most of us are not willing. But the good news is, the Bible says we are going to be made willing. Not, it's not that God is going to give us the power to do his job, which we don't want to do. It's far rather that God is going to give us a, a desire and a zeal to do his job on this earth and he will give us the power together with the zeal and then we'll go forward and we will do it following in his footsteps as it were. Your people shall be willing in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning you have the dew of your youth. It's still early days in the history of the Christian church. Professor Warfield once said the church fathers should rather have been called the church infants. And that's true. It's just the beginning of the day. The sun has barely risen of the Christian centuries. Um, the dew is still on the grass in the early morning. There's enough dew and moisture to cause the grass to grow that torrents of rain come later. You have the dew of your youth. And the one who has the dew, the Lord Jesus Christ, keeps on supplying the dew to us every morning so that refreshed as his children, as his plants, we grow and go forth thus stimulated and thus revived to do his work. Which brings us to the heart of this psalm. Verse 4. The Lord has sworn. The Lord God, notice the block capitals again, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The triune God has sworn, he has promised, and he will not repent, and he will not retract. And what is it that the triune God has sworn? It is this about the man Jesus Christ. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. From what point onward is the man, Christ Jesus, the priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek? Certainly no later than his heavenly session, after his ascension. But bear in mind that it was at our Lord's baptism that he was anointed and appointed to be prophet, priest, and king, so that his ascension into heaven flows forth automatically as a result of his being baptized for his people and on behalf of his people, offering himself as the leader of his people. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. To be sure, he's not only a priest forever, he's also a prophet forever and a king forever. He has political clout, as you will see in the rest of this psalm, he leads his earthly armies as a king leads his soldiers into battle and he speaks to his people as a prophet and he encourages his people and he predicts their success in conquering the world 
for him under his leadership. He is prophet and priest and king forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And yet this verse mentions specifically the priesthood of Melchizedek. Priest forever. Just as Abraham seems to have known automatically that he was to give tithes of all that he had to Melchizedek the priest, probably I think because he'd already done it previously, although the Bible doesn't say so, but he knew what to do. And that ability of Melchizedek the priest to go on giving bread and wine to people like Abraham and to receive tithes from people like Abraham was a permanent one. So too when Jesus comes into the world as the priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, he too, Christ our priest, goes on giving bread and wine to his people as he will do this Sunday in this church, Lord willing, and also goes on receiving the tithes from his people as he will do this Sunday and in this church. But in addition to being priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, he's also king forever because it's according to the order of Melchizedek and Melchizedek means king of righteousness even more than it means priest of righteousness. And because this king-priest Melchizedek spoke God's word to Abraham as we saw last night and because the Lord Jesus Christ, the priest-king, speaks God's word and keeps on speaking God's word and never rescinds his priesthood because the blood of Calvary is never dried up but shed once and for all it has everlasting power because his kingship once assumed in heaven at his ascension is not sitting on the throne once and then getting up from the throne and walking away from it because he keeps on sitting on that throne and because from heaven our great Saviour and Prophet-Priest Jesus Christ didn't just speak once and then be silent, but He keeps on speaking from heaven all the time through His blessed Word to His church as the Prophet. He is Prophet and Priest and King forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, to stir up His people on earth whom He has saved to rule them mightily under his scepter as their king and to encourage them as his people through his prophetic word. Now as a result of this, because we the earthly people of God become bold and become willing to work for him here on earth in this day of his power, notice the consequences. Verse 5, The Lord at your right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. Notice in verse 5 that the word Lord is spelt capital L, small o, small r, small d. It's not referring to the triune God, which is spelt with block capitals. It's referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. So the meaning of verse 5 is, the Lord Jesus Christ, O triune God, who is seated at your right hand, O triune God, he, the Lord Jesus, shall strike and shall keep on striking through, shall cut through and shall cut off kings in the day of his wrath, 
in the day of his anger. Doesn't that remind you of Psalm 2? Listen now, you kings. Be reconciled with the Son while there is yet time before his wrath, before his anger is kindled but a little. Blessed are those who trust in him. And so what is happening right now in this world here on earth, on this great, great planet earth, ever since the heavenly session of our great leader, Melchizedek Jesus, as the Son of Man, is that he, as our Lord, at the right hand of God the Father, is using us here on earth to strike through kings and to keep on striking through kings in the day of Christ's anger. I want you to know that Christ is angry. He is angry with the kings and the political leaders of this world who make war against one another and who rule in their own tin-pot way as the tyrants which they are without reference to the Lord Jesus unto whom all power in heaven and earth has been given. This rule of Christ continues from heaven through his limbs, through his army here on earth in the day of his wrath. We, the earthly church, are to be instruments of the wrath of Christ in the way in which we live. And we who are preachers are to preach the wrath and the anger of God in Jesus Christ towards all who hear the gospel and who harden their wicked hearts and who will not repent. And the message that needs to be thundered forth from every pulpit in the world to all people is repent or perish in this day of Christ's wrath. And you in the pews are to live in a way that will set you aside in the ser service of the Lord Jesus Christ so that this, your example in this wicked world will bring about and broadcast the wrath of Jesus Christ to those whom you are associated with in the workplace and who live in your same street who do not like you follow in the footsteps of King Jesus and who have not yet been made and many of whom never wish to be made willing in this day of his power. Verse 6, He shall judge among the nations. Our Lord Jesus Christ is judging not only at the end of world history, he is judging the nations now during the course of world history. His judgment is upon the nations today. Economic judgments, inflation, depression, um, political judgments, uh, warfare between one group and another, such as the Serbs and the Albanians in Kosovo, not to speak of NATO and whoever may end up as the allies of the Serbs and the allies of the Albanians, the Muslim nations, all the way from Indonesia right through to Morocco. He is judging over and among the nations. He is sifting the nations as he, the Lord Jesus Christ, continues to go forth unto war, giving his commands from heaven to the church as his earthly uh, soldiers here on earth. And there is much carnage 
as a result of this kind of preaching and as this kind of living. It says in verse 6, He shall fill up the places with dead bodies. Jesus Christ himself slays people from heaven. Not the stupid thing that Pentecostalists do and call being slain in the Spirit, but really slaying people. That is to say, repent or perish, so that if they do not repent, he slays them and they perish, and indeed get hurled at the end of their lives into everlasting death, hell, fire, and damnation forever. Meantime, he fills up the places with dead bodies. Christ fills up the places with dead bodies and does not bring everybody back to life. He also wounds the heads over many countries. Distinction here. He fills up the places with dead bodies, but he wounds the heads over many countries. It's as if the word wounds is used in contrast to the dead bodies. So people who hear the gospel proclaimed and who witness the living gospel in the lives of God's people such as yourselves, who resist and who don't want it, they die and then they're dead bodies. But good preaching and a good testimony from uh, normal Christians such as yourself in your community is to wound people. And it is a wound, I believe, which often leads to healing. You cannot heal a person that has an ulcer without lancing that, uh, that pustulant mass uh, with a sword or with a knife so that the pus can be removed. And we are to be God's surgeons. We are to use his word surgically to cut through unto the dividing of the marrow and the bones in their hearts. We are to live lives that are the salt of the earth which stings the rotting meat of the people who surround us. But in that wounding of the heads over many countries, there is salvation. Notice it says he shall wound the heads over many countries. It's not just the down and out that get wounded and then healed. It's the up and out. It's the heads of the nations. It's people like uh, uh, the king of Sweden, who when he heard the performance of Handel's Messiah, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, got up and applauded because he realized as the king of Sweden, he was in the presence of a greater king than he. The heads of the nations, the heads of state, need to be wounded with the gospel so that they can be healed. The heads over many countries, and this will happen, and is to keep on happening as, like a mighty army, the earthly followers of Jesus go forth throughout the world, slaying with the gospel, but also wounding and then bringing healing, also to the heads of the nations, also to presidents and kings and queens. Read the book of Acts. These are the kind of people that Paul started with. Today, in faith missions, we ignore the heads of state and we go to the people with no political influence. Very strange way to try and win the world for Christ. If you win the head of a state, think how much influence that man has in changing the laws of a country like King Constantine. If all you succeed 
in winning in Bongo Bongo land there are a few beggars and lepers and I'm not despising that but I'm saying that that will not have nearly the impact on the Bongo Bongo people as it will if you get the king and the tribal head uh, converted and then he says now friends this is the way it's going to be in this country which I rule and so I call upon the wayward church today to revise totally its missionary strategy and to aim at bringing about the wounding and the conversion of the heads of state over many countries. And finally, I want to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ is in a hurry to get this job done. And he is prosecuting it vehemently. Look at verse 7. He shall drink from the brook in the wayside. And therefore he shall lift up the head. The image is that of a warrior king going forward unto war, leading his troops and slaughtering his opponents so that he is so thirsty as he continues to slaughter and to bring down his enemies uh, that when he reaches a brook, he bows down at the brook and scoops up out of the brook water to slake his thirst with. But he's in such a hurry to do that that he bows down in one motion, scoops up the water and puts it to his mouth while he continues to go forth slaughtering his enemies all the time. That is the action. No stop, no rest for King Jesus, no rest for us as his troops on earth until we finish the job of bringing about the reduction of all of his enemies as a footstool under his feet. Yes, by all means, refresh yourself here on earth when you get tired of working for the Lord. But don't refresh yourself for too long and don't stop working for the Lord even when you're refreshing yourself and use the refreshment to give you more energy to go on as His hands and His feet as parts of His body in order to finish the job. For He is a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek and he makes his people willing. David says, the triune God has said to my Lord Jesus, you sit down and keep on sitting down on the throne at my right hand until I have finished making your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength forth from Zion, forth from the Christian church. Therefore, you keep on ruling in the middle of your enemies, says the triune God to the Savior. Your people, the triune God assures Jesus in heaven, your people shall become willing in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the wombs of the morning. You have the dew of your youth, even when they are young and don't know how to grow, you will give them the dew, you will encourage them so that they grow. The Lord has sworn, and he will not repent. The triune God will never repent. His covenantal promises are yea and amen, and he says to the central person of the Trinity, in his capacity as the Son of Man, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, the King of Righteousness. The Lord 
at your right hand, says David, to the Messiah. Um, sort of the other way around. Um, the, uh, the Lord Jesus, at your right hand, David says to the triune God, he shall strike through kings in the days of his wrath. He shall judge amongst the nations. He shall fill up the places with dead bodies. He shall wound the heads over many countries. He shall drink from the brook in the way or while on the way. And therefore, he shall lift up the head. Will you then not lift up your head and lift up your hearts and march on under Jesus' commands from heaven until the job is finished? and all of his enemies, your enemies, because they're his enemies, have finally been reduced as a footstool under his feet.